I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, just a warning. This episode has a lot of strong language. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everybody. It's fall 2015. So amazing. All across the country, Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump is hosting these massive, shocking rallies. Protesters are getting shouted at, punched, thrown out. Supporters are booing the media. The press, look at all those guys back there with all those live cameras, all the time. Boo, boo. These rallies are loud. They're big. And perhaps most surprisingly, they're growing. Meanwhile, in a small hotel room in rural Pennsylvania, Dino Sajudin was sitting next to a former cop getting hooked up to a polygraph machine. So I remember I was talking to him, but he was hooking me up. And I said, what do you, what do you think about this whole situation? And he says, I don't know. He goes, but uh, a lot of people have been killed for a lot less, he said to me. I kid you not. He hooked me up. I did a whole bunch of questioning, and um, afterwards he says, you did great. You definitely were telling the truth. You weren't lying. This was a relief to Dino. He stood to make a lot of money based on the results of this test. Because also sitting in the room with him was a reporter from the National Enquirer. And she was really excited about it. And I sat down, I spoke with her, and she says, well, I could probably get you 30 grand. You go from having talked to no one about this to... An inquirer reporter Mm -hmm. saying, you know, we can get you huge amounts of money for this Mm -hmm. story. Uh, An ex-cop saying people have been killed for less. Yeah. What were you thinking of all this? It was getting a little scary, you know, to to be honest with you. It was getting a little scary. Plus, you know, I had a family and stuff like that, you know. And were you conscious of how politically significant this might become? Yeah. I 100% thought it was was accurate that this person, I believe, had a child with, with Trump. But no one takes those papers serious anyway, for the most part, you know? So it all, it all would have been taken with a grain of salt either way. I think the fact that they covered it up is what made this a big story. This is the Catch and Kill podcast. I'm Ronan Farrow. Donald Trump pitched himself to America as a deal maker, But now it's the president's alleged attempts to cut deals, deals of questionable legality, that have led to historic levels of scrutiny. Mr. Trump has always insisted he did nothing wrong when he asked Ukraine's president to investigate political rival Joe Biden. Your campaign this time around, if foreigners, if Russia, if China, if someone else offers you information on an opponent, should they accept it or should they call the FBI? 
I think maybe you do both. I think you might want to listen. I don't, there's nothing wrong with listening. But this didn't start with Ukraine or Joe Biden or even Russia. One of the best examples of Trump engaging in backroom deals to gain a political advantage is his relationship with the National Enquirer and its parent company, American Media Inc., AMI. It's a relationship Trump used to suppress stories he didn't want made public through a process known as catch and kill. Today, we're going to look at that process in two parts. First, the story of a rumor, a rumor that has not been verified and may very likely not be true, but that was bought and buried in a transaction that was absolutely real and quite possibly illegal. And then how that rumor and other stories, including true ones, are covered up, as told to us by people on the inside at AMI. It's an alliance that would ultimately land one Trump associate behind bars and reveal a lot about the tactics used by powerful people to control the narrative. I was raised in Brooklyn, raised by a single mom and uh, one sister. We grew up in a large house, with all family, you know, aunts, uncles, grandparents. Italian family. Italian family, yeah, Italian family. Dino Sejudin is not a subtle guy. He's big, boxy, he always worked out a lot. You can probably hear his slicked back hair and Al Pacino goatee coming through this recording. That comparison would have thrilled his younger self. It sounds like pretty early on you got acquainted with the gang scene in Brooklyn. It was pretty abundant in Brooklyn, you know, Bath Avenue boys, that was like us, and it was B-50th. Whole bunch of different cliques. Obviously, there was also like the real mob. Um, 18th Avenue was old Italian cafes, you know, so you can make your own judgment what you think might be hanging out in there, you know. In his teens, Dino says he got into a lot of scrapes with mobsters. One time he went to break up a fight and accidentally landed a punch on the wrong person. This person later on, we find out, is connected. And what that means is, you know, now you got other people looking for you. Car chases through Bensonhurst, it was crazy, it was pretty scary. And the connections flowed into Dino's jobs as well from flipping hot dogs at Nathan's to construction work when he was in his early 20s. We do brick defacing, then we go inside the building and we do um, asbestos abatements, lead abatements, with needle guns, full suits and everything. It was hard work. And occasionally, Dino says, there was a little extra incentive for the inspectors. My boss would put an envelope right next to the spot where he wanted the inspectors from the city to come and inspect. They come to do a sample, which is highly cleaned, take the envelope, passed. That's the way it worked. It was a crash course in a very specific kind of politics. Politics that were all about who you knew, who you could intimidate, and whose palms you could grease. They try to be nice to you in the beginning to try and get what they want. If that doesn't work, then they go the other route. That's pretty much how you see things happen with, with, with the mob growing up in Brooklyn. In the early 2000s, Dino got a job he figured would distance him from the suspicious envelopes and strong-arm tactics. He started working at a corporate fitness center. One day, his bosses told him he was going to work in a new building, uptown. They said, we're going to put you in the Trump building over at 48th and 1st. And I said, okay, great. You know, that's like when I got introduced into the Trump organization. It was amazing. I was pretty much overwhelmed. You had, you know, the ceilings were, had to be like 30, 40 feet. Marble everywhere, chandeliers. There were $500,000 chandeliers, what I was told. I mean, to clean the chandelier, I heard it was like five grand just to clean them. They take the whole thing apart, take it away, clean it, bring it back, and reassemble it. It was hours that the guy was doing working on it. It was amazing to be working there. Overall, Dino liked the job. He just had one problem. Very quickly, he realized he didn't get along with the head concierge, the woman who basically ran the front lobby. First day there, I walked into the lobby. 
and I asked, um, where is the, you know, the fitness center? And she says to me, she says, do you work for the fitness center? You don't come to the lobby no more. Dino says he started hearing from other people who had tensions with this concierge. He says she'd even argue with staff in front of residents. She was really, really rude. Every coworker that I, that I was there had an issue with her at one point in time that she was rude with. It was frustrating. But every time she had an argument with somebody, the first words that come out of her mouth is, I will call Mr. Trump. I will call Mr. Trump. And we all were like, well, who says that? You know, unless you, you really could do that, why would you even mention that, you know? It wasn't clear to Dino why this concierge thought she had a direct line to Trump. My manager told me that she was Trump's ex-housekeeper. And I was like, housekeeper? I'm like, that's kind of strange. No offense against housekeepers, but I don't know if a housekeeper would be the same qualifications as to be a head concierge in this multi-million dollar building. Dino felt one of his professional responsibilities was addressing these kinds of workplace tensions. So he says he raised his concerns, first with his manager, who didn't do anything about it, and then higher up the ladder with the Trump Organization's COO, a guy named Matt Calamari. Matt Calamari. He's a character, straight out of like a gangster movie. 6'5", very stern, tries to intimidate you. Like when, like when he shakes your hand, he doesn't like go with your hand until he gets his point across, like squeezing your hand, you know. Uh-huh. You know, I yeah. know the type. Yeah, yeah. Calamari was Trump's longtime bodyguard. He'd risen through the ranks of the Trump Organization. When Dino brought up the concierge with him, he had quite the reaction. He got really loud and rude and told me, he says, you know, you need to like let it go. He said, if you have Trump's kid, you can do whatever you want. Trump's kid. Dino was taken aback. And I was like, well, he just, like, my, my brain, like, my mind heard it, but I was still trying to grasp what that meant. I'm like, is he saying that him and her have a kid? Calamari didn't respond to requests for comment. A spokesperson for the Trump Organization denied the allegations to The New Yorker, including the assertion that Calamari told Dino the rumor. Dino says he and others kept having run-ins with the concierge, so he kept raising the issue, despite Calamari's warning. At which point, he says, things at Trump Tower started to seem more like his past jobs at the asbestos sites. For example, the way money worked. Yeah, whenever Trump would come to the building, he would quite often give everybody a $100 bill. Dino says once he heard this rumor, there appeared to be efforts to make nice with him, including the next time Trump came to the building and started handing out bills to the staff. One time he came to the building, him and Calamari came in. Calamari shook my hand and put something in my hand, and I thought it was like a $100 bill. And it was, uh, it was a significant increase over everybody else's. How much money? Several hundred bucks. I assumed he was being so nice to me because he wanted me to be quiet. But Dino says he couldn't stay quiet. He says after he raised the issue again, Calamari summoned him into a meeting. The blinds were drawn. There were two other big guys in the room. So one of his guys pulled the chair off of me. And he says, uh, have a seat, Mr. Dino. So I had a seat. And Calamari's across the table. And he says, you know why you're here, right? And I says, I kind of got an idea why I'm here. And he says, um, you know, you have to let the situation go. We think of you like family. We work together. But you need to let the situation go. And I said, okay, okay, okay. And then he stood up and he shook my hand. And with a super firm handshake. And he says, you know, do you understand what I'm talking about? Are we clear? And I says, yeah, we're clear. And I was ready to go. He wouldn't let go of my hand. And he said, we're clear. I said, yeah, we're clear. And he said to the, the other guy. Uh, show Mr. Dino to the door. It was like a, like a movie, you know? It was like watching, like, uh, Goodfellas or something, you know? It was crazy. It's like a corporate mob, so, so to speak, you know, when you're dealing like, with, with the Trump organization. That's why I felt, like, dark rooms with intimidation tactics, and, you know, they try to be nice to you in the beginning to try and get what they want, 
And then if that doesn't work, they try to strong arm you. And if that doesn't work, they try to work out a deal. Dino's standing in the organization kept deteriorating. He says because he wouldn't drop the rumor. Eventually, things got bad enough, everyone agreed he should leave. He says he got a couple months severance, and his union was supposed to help him find another job in the city. But no job turned up. I definitely feel I was blacklisted. Then I said to myself, they probably don't want a person with this information working in a building in Manhattan. It's probably not a good start to be getting out. So how do you avoid that? You know, get rid of the dude. This is the moment where Dino's story goes from workplace rumor to presidential cover-up. See, Dino had a new baby. Christmas was fast approaching, and now he was hard up for money. So he had an idea. So you see when you walk out of like the grocery stores, that's all there is, is tabloids, tabloids. I said to my son, I said, I wonder if one of the tabloids would be interested in this story. I said, you know, I said, maybe it might be worth a couple of bucks, at least something to sustain me. So I think I called the Globe first, um, left a message. And then I think I shot an email over to the Inquirer. The National Inquirer, known for headlines like Housewife's death reveals hubby's corpse in freezer and Phil Spector is losing his hair and his mind. Obviously, both of those end in exclamation points. Almost immediately, Dino got a call back from a very eager reporter at the Inquirer. And she says, you know, we'd be very interested in your story. You know, can I come up and meet with you? I'm like, okay, when? She's like, how about later on today? I'm like, well, today's not going to work. She says, "Um, how about tomorrow? The reporter offered him six figures for the rights to the story. When Dino said he didn't want his name included, they settled on 30000 He signed an initial agreement. All he had to do was pass that polygraph test, which he did. It's important to note that the polygraph didn't measure the veracity of the claim itself, only whether or not Dino believed he was telling the truth about what he heard. It's also important to note that polygraphs are notoriously flawed and largely inadmissible in court. Shortly after, the paper got back in touch. Something had changed. They wanted him to sign another contract. They said someone would meet him at a fast food place near his home in Pennsylvania to get it all squared away. So I walk in there and I'm looking around and I see one guy by himself at a table, not eating nothing. So I'm like, I walk up to him and I announce his name and he says, yeah. And he says, uh, Mr. June? I said, yeah. He says, all right, he goes, I got this contract and he pulls it out. And the contract basically just you know, stated that I would agree not to, you know, to talk about this story a non-disclosure agreement. But this new version had a clause Dino had never seen before. If I did speak on the story, I could be subject to a million-dollar fine. And I signed off on it, initialed it. She said, okay, shook my hand. He said, okay, great. Did you think they were going to run the story? Yeah, I figured they would have, yeah. It's a Trump story, you know. I mean, she was so eager. So I figured probably a couple of weeks, maybe a month, sorry, in the paper. A few months later, Donald Trump won his first primary as a presidential candidate. ABC News projects that Donald Trump will win, that it's based on the exit polls and some votes already counted, and it's looking like a decisive victory. A few months after that, he became the Republican nominee. This evening, his last opponent dropped out, ensuring that Donald Trump will be the party's nominee. And a few months after that, he became the president. Thank you. All along, Dino waited. But the story never ran. Sorry to keep you waiting. Complicated business. Complicated. Behind the scenes, AMI reporters had been ordered by their bosses to stop working on it. A few of them were pretty outraged. At the time, I didn't know that there was any affiliation between Trump and the Inquirer. I mean, the Inquirer writes about everybody, like, you know? Why would they exclude him, you know? And I said, maybe Trump's got stroke over there, too. After the break, 
a secret deal between Donald Trump and the National Enquirer blows wide open. And I get a hold of Dino's contract. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest Who Liberty stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. Welcome back. In order to fully understand what happened when Dino signed that contract at that fast food place, you need to understand how things work inside the tabloids, specifically how they work at AMI, American Media Inc. My name is Maxine Page, and I'm a former tabloid editor. Maxine Page had an early view of how the privileged get ahead and stay ahead. Well, I grew up in a place called Maidstone, which is um, about 20 minute drive to the outskirts of London. It has all these amazing castles and it has a great history and it has beautiful gardens, but it also has one of the highest concentration of trailer parks. After a few years in publishing and radio in London, she moved to LA and fell into the tabloid world, which is ironic because she kind of can't stand celebrity culture. I have not watched one single episode of The Real Housewives or of The Kardashians. I would rather stick a rusty screwdriver in my eyes than watch either of those things. It didn't take long for her to learn the ropes and get a sense of the ethics of tabloid reporting. I remember being sent to Mexico. There'd been a a hurricane and Brad Pitt had been filming Troy there at the time. And... I pretty much worked out by the time I arrived immediately that Brad Pitt had skipped out of the country the second they heard that um, a hurricane was coming in. But, hey, you know, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Maxine stayed, and she interviewed people who'd met Pitt while he was there. She talked to some crew members, some locals. And, you know, what was Brad like? And, you know, they all said unanimously he was really kind and caring person. You know, he found that my son um, didn't have the books he needed for school. So he actually came by one day and dropped off all these books. So, you know, I took all the nice things they said about him. And then I, you know, kind of massaged that into a story that then became the headlines. And it was actually, yeah, it was front cover. And it was Brad Pitt's Hurricane Terror. Um, was the headline, which was, you know, a lot of the content was completely true and it was based on truth, but factually it wasn't true at all because he wasn't there at the time of the hurricane. I sort of skipped around that part. Over the years, Maxine worked for a bunch of different tabloid publishers, but the one she kept coming back to was AMI. She worked there on and off from 2002 to 2012, including as an executive editor at one of the company's websites. Went there, worked, left, went to another company, went back, boom, boom, boom. Like any sort of toxic relationship, it's difficult to break up finally. The early days of the Inquirer were really horrific. It was uh, blood and guts, uh, terrible photographs, you know, really terrible uh, exploitative journalism. That's Jeffrey Tubin. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker and the chief legal analyst on CNN. 
He's also done a lot of reporting on AMI and the National Enquirer. One of the most uh, notorious covers of the early period was a photograph of Lee Harvey Oswald on the autopsy table, which I think gives you a sense of the uh, ghoulishness of the Inquirer in that era. What made the Inquirer a household name was a change of leadership. It was purchased in an allegedly mob-connected deal by a guy named Generoso Pope. Who said, you know how we need to really sell the paper is by being in supermarkets. It wasn't a paper that had a lot of subscribers, but good real estate and catchy headlines did a whole lot of work. It is almost impossible to believe how many copies uh, the Inquirer was selling in the 70s. You know, it was in the millions every week. I mean, it was, in many respects, depending how you define it, the best-selling newspaper in America in the 1970s. By the late 90s, however, the Inquirer was a shell of its former self. Circulation has dropped. People aren't buying newspapers. Uh, cable television, the internet is, is starting to come in. The Inquirer was very much a fading institution. And that is when David Pecker arrives. Well, I mean, what, what, what I mean, I, the Inquirer was, when I bought the Inquirer, it was, it was 60 pages, 20 pages of it was snake oil advertising. The worst advertising you could possibly yeah, think. And then there was 40... The story of AMI and the modern National Enquirer really revolves around two of its head honchos. The first is David Pecker, the chief executive of AMI. You can never change the National Enquirer's brand. You said you can't put lipstick on a pig. This is a recording Jeffrey Tubin made in 2017 at a lunch with Pecker. At the time, Tubin was working on a piece about AMI for The New Yorker. Sitting with David Pecker, as I did several times in 2017, is really like talking to someone from a different era. Pecker's father was a bricklayer. The family lived in the Bronx on a Jewish block in an Italian neighborhood. They moved upstate when he was five or six. When I was a kid, when I was a kid, uh, I was really focused on succeeding. He's a print guy. He's someone who's made his whole career in print. And he's sort of an old-fashioned newspaper baron. You know, he loves scandal and scoops. And, you know, he's got this sort of 1970s haircut and mustache um, that makes him look like someone out of another era. He looked like someone had just stepped off the set. He was like this like Miami, kind of like secondhand car salesman, you know, wise guy, kind of hood with like an open neck shirt and literally a gold medallion. And this like razzy little, snazzy little moustache. You would always see a kid when he was in high school, he had, a, he had that time was a Mercedes Benz, but he would have like a Corvette. And above all, the thing you need to know about David Pecker is that he's a numbers guy. He came up in journalism, not through editorial, but through accounting. Pecker got his CPA and eventually wound up at the big French publisher Hachette, trying to extend the life of glossy magazines. The new trend at the time was something called custom publishing. He'd make a high-end magazine for a brand or person who would control the content in it. One of his first pitches was to a hotel magnate named Donald Trump. And is that how you met Donald? Yeah. I cold called him. You sorry? I cold called him. It was called Trump Style. A magazine that all the guests at Trump hotels got when they checked into their rooms. And, and that was the basis, the original basis of their relationship. 
The magazine featured cover stories like Another Trump Triumph, and somewhat inexplicably, a photo of a golf course with the headline, Above Par. Trump and Pecker worked together for five years, and they became friends. So this becomes the central question in many of the conversations about AMI. What did each of them get out of it? Pecker spends a lot of time in Palm Beach. Um, he would see Trump at Mar-a-Lago. And, you know, Pecker was, is, it was and is a wealthy man, but he is not in the billionaire league. And he really uh, looked up to Trump and idolized him to a certain extent. Pecker being the star-crossed you know, former accountant that he is, basically courted Trump heavily as a buddy. So of course Trump is going to recognize that he's buddied up with the top guy at the biggest selling tabloid in the USA at that time. And it's, you know, it's a bromance made in hell, heaven, whatever. Pecker's values his attraction to celebrities, and his willingness to pander to them, came to define the AMI that Maxine Page arrived at in the 2000s. Just the whole culture of the company was so inappropriate and toxic, just unethical. Starting at AMI as a rookie in the tabloid world, Maxine ran headlong into a culture she says felt chauvinistic. It's like an old boys club. You know, alpha male behavior, aggression, and taking credit for everything is at the heart of the whole company culture. You know, and any woman, especially any woman who worked at AMI at that time, would back up my claims there. I talked to a number of women who worked at AMI and did have similar complaints. There was a lot of drama that was created by the management. There's a lot of, like, anxiety and unnecessary stress and a lot of unnecessary drama that was simply down to someone's neurosis, you know? She says it got a lot worse in 2009. That's when a new executive arrived, the second head honcho at the center of this story, David Pecker's right-hand man. Dylan Howard arrived. Charlie Sheen threatened to kill me once. Charlie Over Sheen what? ain't gonna kill Over me. Over what? So Dylan I'm... Howard is much younger than David Pecker, but he seems like even more of a throwback than David huh. Pecker because he is just like old school tabloid. This is a guy who like lives for embarrassing celebrities. The, the greatest moment of his life, as he described it to me, was when he finally nailed down the story that Charlie Sheen was HIV positive. I mean, he just lived for celebrity dirt. And the fact that he had a, an Australian accent uh, made it even better. You know, I have a thing in my office and it's my saying all the time, defeat is not an option. I don't want to lose. If I lose, I get so shitty and I don't want to be around. This is from another lunch interview Jeffrey Tubin recorded in 2017. This one with Dylan Howard. I am not back from lunch. We are about to have main course. But both Pecker and, and Dylan Howard are the last journalists I know who drink wine at lunch. And I thought that was indicative of uh, the kind of vanished world they represent. I, when I took over the Inquirer, I spent thousands of dollars on back issues on eBay. Every story you do must elicit some form of emotion from the reader. Fear, anger, laughter, humor, uh, tears. And I try and tell that to everybody. Every story you have has to connect to the reader. Howard's 38. He has this troll doll tuft of ginger hair. He wears Coke bottle glasses, a lot of loud ties. He arrived at AMI from southeastern Australia, 
with a reputation trailing not far behind. Everyone soon found out that he came from a past that was very controversial. Howard left a TV sports reporting job in Australia after a police investigation into how he got a hold of athletes' medical records. Then he was hired by, and quickly left, a company called Croc Media. His boss there said, quote, his methods make me uncomfortable. Twelve former AMI employees later told the Associated Press that Howard engaged in abusive or harassing behavior there. He was having, at that time, was having the most insane mood swings and basically like toddler tantrum fits. At one time, I remember, he just picked up a book, like a really heavy book, and threw it at the head of his then deputy, basically because the deputy had asked a question that was completely valid, that, that Dylan thought questioned his authority and he didn't like it. He was like, shut the fuck up, and threw a book at this dude's head. Those former employees told the AP, and many of them also told me, that Howard made sexual comments about women. Maxine says he was fixated on one in particular. Then he started calling her, ah, the dirty old cougar. And then one day there was like a bring your child to work day and she brought her daughter, who at the time was like 12, I believe. And he's like, ah, she'll end up being a whore just like a dirty cougar mum. And then he actually set up this Facebook page in homage of the dirty cougar's vagina. Um, or, you know, he said, dirty cougar's cunt, in Dylan words, and you can bleep that if needs be. The employees who talked to the AP also said he'd make people watch porn in the office. Maxine remembers him asking a staffer to sleep with sources. He was like, I don't care what you got to do. Go fuck somebody if you need to do it, but you are coming back and you're going to bring me this story. Howard had a nickname that he asked colleagues to use. Dildo. The, nick the nickname was Dildo. <laughs> yes, as in the sex object. In 2012, two colleagues approached Maxine, saying they felt harassed by Howard. She filed a formal complaint. The company hired a consultant to investigate and found what an AMI lawyer called, quote, horsing around that did not rise to a level that would, quote, require termination. Maxine said management had handpicked who would be interviewed for the report. One interview subject told the AP they had witnessed harassment but denied it during the investigation out of fear. Another said Howard retaliated against her for participating. They basically dismissed the voice of three women. They basically just brushed it aside. Ah, uh, you know, boys will be boys. You know, Trump again. Just this week, The Hollywood Reporter obtained an HR memo from another company Howard worked at in the 2010s, Celeb Buzz. The report says Howard violated the company's sexual harassment policy, making lewd comments and retaliating against workers who didn't engage in his sexual banter. Howard resigned from the job. A spokesperson for Howard and AMI declined to comment for this episode. Howard has disputed the AP's reporting. In a legal threat letter about this podcast, Howard's lawyer called Maxine Page's claims, quote, unsubstantiated, and said she had a, quote, axe to grind. Beyond the culture behind the scenes, Maxine says she was uncomfortable with the ethics of the actual reporting the company was doing, even by the standards she was used to in the tabloid world. Some very dubious and questionable behavior, like going through you know, people's dumpsters, which at the time was legal if the dumpster was on a public road. One time, Maxine remembered management receiving a tip about a teen actress being pregnant and sending reporters to stake out the girl. That made me furious, and I was disgusted. 
and it actually spurred me to secretly contact and tell the child's attorney exactly what was happening. Don't harass a child, period. AMI maintains that its practices are legal. There was one more tactic AMI employed, one less conspicuous than digging through trash cans, but ultimately more explosive. Maxine was one of a large number of AMI employees who described old-fashioned backroom deals, often brokered by Dylan Howard with AMI's celebrity allies and its enemies. I definitely witnessed coercive behavior on his behalf. I would sit in a meeting and he would discuss how he was going to call so-and-so's publicist and tell them that if so-and-so didn't agree to give an on-the-record interview, then he would run a negative story about them. Conversely, I was in a meeting and witnessed him on more than one occasion, you know, saying that he would run a favorable story if that person gave him a quote that fitted a narrative that he'd come up with. So it's not blackmail in the purest terms, but it's coercion. To Maxine, the most frustrating thing about these deals was that sometimes they would result in AMI genuinely landing a big scoop. But after buying the information, they wouldn't run it at all. There were situations where I was ordered to kill a story that was actually a really good story. And, you know, I was ordered to kill the story because the lawyer had contacted and said, look, you know, the client will do whatever with you if you kill this story. Well, my involvement was there were two stars that David favored and tried to work into the titles. One of them was um, Schwarzenegger and the other was Stallone. That's one of Maxine's colleagues, Jerry George, in an interview we did in 2018. He passed away last year. Jerry was one of the first former AMI employees to go public about these deals. Schwarzenegger, I think my involvement was during the first gubernatorial race when there were mistresses and we had stories and we bought them knowing full well that they weren't going to run. He ended up buddying up with Schwarzenegger and sure enough, all of a sudden, all of the negative Schwarzenegger stories stopped. Is your impression, having been in this world, that there's a whole universe of stories that maybe would be of significance if people knew about them and that have been buried as part of these kinds of transactional relationships? Without any shadow of a doubt, I could say, hand on heart, in an open court, under oath, I could say that there are so many stories. But then it got to the point where it inevitably was just, uh, of course they killed it. You know, just, uh, of course they did. So I couldn't put a number on it, but that's the level of frequency. There was, of course, an old term in the tabloid industry for these deals. They will find a story or, a, you know, a person with a story and pay that person for the rights to run that story and then not run it. Uh, they catch the story, and then they kill the story. That's where the phrase catch and kill comes from. Mostly, AMI and the Inquirer focused their attention on your classic celebrities. Kelly Ripposells. Kelly Ripposells, Jan Aniston. Uh, Jan Aniston, so. Still Brad Angelina. 
That had long included celebrities at the intersection of entertainment and news. But Megyn Kelly, for example, is a celebrity. Is Matt Lau is a celebrity. That's Dylan Howard again in spring 2017. If you've read the book this podcast is based on, Am I's focus on Lauer during this period will sound familiar. Matt's marriage has been a subject of yours before, or has yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, we had a great story. You know, I'm sure I'm not on Matt Lauer's Christmas conference. Yeah, no, I know. But increasingly, the tabloid empire was starting to turn toward a new form of celebrity. Politics as celebrity. I think politics is the new celebrity. Really? I really do. All right, this here's a good question. Who else in the political world do you think will be a political celebrity? Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders? No, they don't embody the characteristics of a celebrity. Which are? Arrogance, ego, charisma, and controversy. Arrogance, ego, charisma, and controversy. There was maybe one character in politics who embodied those qualities more than anyone else. Does that get under your skin? No, because you see, I think I'm right. And when I think I'm right, nothing bothers me. Trump always dealt with the Inquirer. That's Jerry George again, the former AMI employee. He would send stories our way. I mean, you know the whole thing about him disguising his voice and saying he was a publicist. Back in the 90s, Donald Trump would allegedly call reporters under the name John Miller or John Barron, claiming to have positive gossip about himself. This recording was originally obtained by the Washington Post. Uh, he's coming out of a uh, you know, marriage that, uh, and, he's, and he's starting to do tremendously well financially. For a guy with all his money, he really did some kind of cheesy things. But once Pecker got involved, I think Hector really fancied him a friend. And from that point on, we didn't cover a word that Trump didn't authorize. Were you ever aware of any catch and kill for, for Trump? Uh, yeah. With David Hecker, along came the concept of catch and kill. It was all suddenly the favor bank. We'll take care of you. That's Donald Trump. And you take care of us. And thus the relationship began. Donald Trump announced his presidential candidacy in June 2015. By that August, he was facing scrutiny about the way he talked about and treated women. You've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. Does that sound to you like the temperament of a man we should elect as president? You know, you could see there was blood coming out of her eyes. Uh, blood coming out of her wherever. New allegations tonight of a personal vendetta from President-elect Trump and a threat... So that month, Donald Trump and his personal attorney, Michael Cohen, had a meeting with David Pecker. It was on the 26th floor of Trump Tower. Pecker offered to help Trump with his bad press. He said he could identify salacious stories about Trump and women, buy them up, and keep them from seeing the light of day. There were really two ways AMI tried to help Trump during the 2016 election. First, the National Enquirer, this is the first candidate they have ever endorsed for president. And 30% of their covers during 2016 were either pro-Trump or anti-Hillary. They unleashed a flood of pro-Trump headlines. Headlines like, how Donald Trump will win, and the Donald Trump nobody knows. Simultaneously, they attacked Hillary Clinton with headlines like, 
Hillary, corrupt, exclamation point. Racist, exclamation point. Criminal, question mark. Just kidding. It was an exclamation point. At the time, Pecker said it was just about numbers. Trump sold well. He was just what the readers wanted. They know him as the 14 years on The Celebrity Apprentice as the boss. Just they love to see, they loved it when he fired The Celebrity Apprentice, when he fired those people and he ridiculed them. They loved it. This is the audience that Hillary Clinton missed. That's right. But then there was the other form the deal took, the other way AMI tried to influence Trump's chances through catch and kill. And they got the opportunity when the Inquirer got a tip from a former doorman named Dino Sejudin. How confident were you that this, that there was something to it even? Mm-hmm. Um, very confident. If I had $100 to bet on the story being true or not, I'd bet the $100 that it was true. Dino remained convinced that the rumor was true, but he thought the Inquirer burying the story was the end of it. Pretty much I thought that would be it. You know, I thought it was over with, you know. I just went on with my life, you know. And then when did it next come up? When, uh, I believe you were at my house once. In 2017, while I was reporting on Harvey Weinstein, I uncovered emails between Weinstein and Dylan Howard, showing how the two men had a close alliance. Howard used the AMI playbook to help bury stories and dig up dirt on Weinstein's accusers. Can we talk about the work that you've been doing for your friend Harvey Weinstein? I've been doing absolutely no work for Harvey Weinstein. Well, you've been digging the dirt. No. On Weinstein's accusers. Why have you been doing that? Our responses have been well articulated about exactly Can you talk to me about that? Then I started hearing from former AMI employees that the tabloid empire was doing similar work for Trump. Eventually, a source gave me a copy of Dino's contract, and I headed out to rural Pennsylvania to knock on his door. And you were uh, asking me about questions about this this contract and this this gag clause, and I'm like, who is this guy? I'm like, I don't don't really watch I'm like, who is this guy? And I think I even said to you, I said, how much you want to pay to talk to me or something like that? Mm-hmm. Because I know you can't take money. And, and you're like, well, I'm in no position to pay you. Well, then I'm in no position to talk to you. Uh, I, I want to apologize for being so rude to you first. I know it's your job. <laughs> I've had worse. But, you know, but, my, but my situation was kind of like strange and uh, pretty, pretty much asked you to leave and you left. You, you were polite. And I was like, holy crap, where did this guy get this information from? How did this get out? I said, I'm not supposed to be saying nothing. Who would leak this? I grew up with a lot of intrusive press scrutiny around my family. I even know my way around a paternity rumor. So I wanted to be respectful of the family at the heart of Dino's story. And that meant hearing what their wishes were, if any. I talked to the father, in person, and then on the phone. That was like two, two years ago that happened, that when they started coming yeah. to my house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, should I say something about how difficult it's been that you asked for privacy? He said the rumor wasn't true, and blamed AMI for putting an uncomfortable spotlight on his family. The mother declined to comment one way or another. So did the daughter, through a spokesperson at her workplace. She worked, seriously, for a genetic testing company. It was always clear that the story here was the transaction, not the rumor. And it was also clear that there were reasons to doubt the rumor. Some of the sources around the story raised concerns about Dino's reliability. Dylan Howard pointed to an anonymous website that described Dino as a shakedown artist. There was a whole website set up yeah. that was like, Dino Sajudin is a crook or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I think maybe a big part of it was, an ex, was my ex-wife. Uh, if you saw her online, she had a passion you know, for hatred towards me. There are going to be people who say, this is a disgruntled employee. Of course he had a reason to make this up. 
that I got a good imagination. I, um, you know, I tied everything together pretty well, you know. Uh, I must have spent a lot of time working on the story, that's all I could say, because this is not a made-up story. This is, this is actually what happened. In April of 2018, The New Yorker published its story about the catch-and-kill operation. The AP, which had previously killed a story it was working on about the transaction under pressure from Dylan Howard and his lawyers, also revived their effort and raced to publish. Dino got a ton of calls and visits from reporters. As the story spiraled, AMI released him from his NDA. He's written a book about the whole thing, called, what else, Trump Doorman. Are you glad that it's out there now? The only point I'll say to you that I'm glad it's out there is because they get to see the real person that Trump is. And I think that that's a big part of this, you know, about covering up stories. That, that's wrong, you know, that this, this is the person that's leading our country. After Maxine Page helped her colleagues file the complaint about Dylan Howard, she was ultimately laid off. She had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. But eventually, she decided to go public anyway. When stuff started coming out, you know, the Me Too movement was sparked. It just, it really resonated strongly with me from a personal thing, from experiences that happened to me in my personal life. Like, this is not okay what happened. And I didn't give a fuck about the NDA. And so that's why I ended up approaching someone and going on the record and talking about Dylan Howard. She has no plans to go back to tabloid journalism. And that's almost why I've thrown a figurative, like, hand grenade at the bridge that was my career, because I didn't want to just burn it in case I step back over it. So I'll just be a starving artist in Mexico and live off of tortillas. Do you have any regrets? (laughs) No. No, I have one regret. I have one, this is genuinely honest, I have one main regret in my life, and it is not purchasing this really cool, awesome ceramic moose head that I saw once in Blackheath, (laughs) London, in 1988, when I was out shopping with my friend Grace. And it was expensive for me at the age of 18, but I said, oh my God, it's really cool, and I really love it, and I did. Look, it's hard to come by a good ceramic moose head. But it, you, honestly, to this day, I still regret not buying that moose head. But that is genuinely, honestly, my only regret. David Pecker, Dylan Howard, and AMI wound up with bigger problems than moose heads. As we prepared to publish the New Yorker story about all this, Howard sent furious threats to the magazine. You're about to shit all over the institution that is the New Yorker, he wrote to David Remnick, the editor-in-chief. And of me, quote... He's about to make terrific Inquirer fodder. When I kept going with the story, I started experiencing the AMI playbook so many employees had told me about. First, the calls started coming in saying they were going to run a story about a pedophile uncle I couldn't recall ever meeting. Then there was the one implicating me and another journalist who'd worked on a story critical of AMI in some sort of Brazilian sex romp. If only my life were so interesting. This morning, there are more allegations against the National Enquirer. Ronan claims AMI urged him to stop digging or will ruin you. Honestly, as much as it was amusing to be an all-caps villain in the Enquirer for a brief shining moment, it was also pretty upsetting and intrusive. AMI employees said they even had my boyfriend followed around for a while. They eventually gave up because his routine was so boring. Dylan Howard denied those assertions. By spring 2018, prosecutors were investigating whether the deal between AMI and Donald Trump had criminal ramifications. We have breaking news just in. The New York Times uh, just reported that the FBI today raided the offices of President Trump's longtime attorney, Michael Cohen. More on that 
in the next episode. And the following year, when AMI kept trying its coercion tactics on more powerful and wealthy targets, the playbook wasn't working anymore. Jeff Bezos of Amazon, the world's richest man, is taking on the publisher of the National Enquirer, accusing the media giant run by a longtime friend of President Trump of trying to blackmail him with compromising photos. Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, didn't comply with AMI's demands to cut a deal to avoid the publication of explicit photos. In fact, he posted the company's communications with him online. David Pecker and Dylan Howard kept track of what headlines sold and which ones didn't in a database. You might have seen one particular headline a lot at the supermarket checkout. Sad last days. And then sad last days. I love the sad last days. With AMI under scrutiny from prosecutors, facing potential civil liability from increasingly powerful enemies, and watching circulation numbers flatline, a lot of employees told me these are the company's sad last days. I think the future for AMI is grim. Um, this is like old school journalism, selling newspapers and magazines on paper. They essentially have no internet presence at all. You know, what they are doing is bleeding these publications dry. They are shrinking staff. They are selling uh, what they can. In early 2019, with AMI swimming in debt, the Inquirer and its sister outlets, The Globe and The National Examiner, were sold for scrap. After a rocky year, the National Enquirer is being sold to the owner and CEO of Hudson News for $100 million. David Pecker is still CEO of AMI, and Dylan Howard is still chief content officer. But the Enquirer's crowning achievement may be behind it. For better or for worse, the election of Donald Trump is the last accomplishment of the National Enquirer. Next week on the show, our final episode, how Dino was just the beginning of AMI's catching and killing for Trump. President Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, reported to prison Monday. He is serving a three-year sentence for campaign finance violations, bank fraud, and tax evasion. That's a terrible thing to do is ruin an election. You know, you don't want to be that, I don't want to be that person. Yeah, yeah. And how the collapse of the alliance between AMI and Trump shook not just the tabloid empire, but the presidency. The Catch and Kill podcast is a production of Pineapple Street Studios and me, Ronan Farrow. It's produced by Sophie Bridges, Sharina Ong, Janelle Pfeiffer, and Unjin Lee. Our senior producer is Eric Menel. Editing by Joel Lovell and Max Linsky. Pineapple's executive producers are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. Production support from Maddie Sprung-Kaiser, Emily Becker, and Barry Finkel. Fact-checking by Sean Lavery. Music in this episode from Blue Dot Sessions, Firstcom, and Marmoset. This is all based on reporting I did for my book, Catch and Kill, available where you buy your books and as an audiobook. Thanks for listening. We'll be back one more time next week. <laughs>